Oh, look at that. It's your face. It's like it's <laughs> Here like I am. it's like a living selfie. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I was, I was thinking before I um before I I called you that I probably I probably see your face more than like the faces <laughs> of actual friends I have like in town, you know. Yeah. I mean, I make sure of it. Yeah, you do. You do. I'm bored all the time. <laughs> you said you said the other day um you said the other day something like here's you were you were describing was it the last night or this morning on Twitter about how the uh how the whole selfieing process works, which is Yeah, you, it was last night. You have you said I have my phone in my hand and then I suddenly think I bet I look really cute right now. Yeah. Well, because I was like looking at Twitter and then I was like, I wonder what I look like right now. I bet amazing. <laughs> Usually that's not true. And then you have to take like eight hundred selfies to have one that looks okay. And then once you have that one, you're like I have to put this on the internet. Yeah, naturally. This took a really long time. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I was thinking your um your future, uh, you know, li- literary biographers of the past would have to like sort through lots of old records to like find those rare photos of of writers. But that will be the opposite problem for your biographers. Right. They'll be like, which which one of these identical photos with the earbuds looking at the laptop are we going to go with? Yeah, totally. I mean, that's probably true for most writers <laughs> now. So. Many, anyway. Now that I've I've embraced my middle age vanity, I've been taking more selfies. I it's really fun. Yeah, especially if there's a cat like nearby looking looking cute as well. Well, because like Ezra from Vampire Weekend, he had a tweet that was like. The proliferation of selfies, the only thing it speaks to is uh, the fact that there are more cameras. Like not in any way an increase in human vanity. It's just like, I mean, the availability of cameras. Yeah, I think so. Well, similarly, I was talking to um, – so Rian has been out of town a lot for the last month because she had a, an illness in the family. So I've been in the, un, the unusual position of being alone and home with the kids, and I've been going kind of stir-crazy. And uh, But I noticed that um, when I talked to Rian on the house phone at her parents' place where she was staying, I would get this horrible like half-second echo. You know, you can sometimes yeah. hear this on a cell phone, but – she was using a phone that was not sort of equipped to deal with this. And so I would hear everything I said, I would hear half a second later said back to me. Yeah. And every time I was thinking, this is, I sound like an asshole. I'm an <laughs> asshole. Like everything I said sounded stupid because I was hearing yeah. it. And then I realized if we could, if we could hear and see everything that we did and said like a second later, I think everyone would commit suicide <laughs> yeah. together. That used well. It still sometimes happens to me on my mom's cell phone, but it used to happen to me all the time when I would call her work phone. Yeah, which I used to do constantly, like when I was in college or whatever, and just like want to talk, want to chat. But yeah, it's awful. I mean, I think about like the reality TV thing of like clearly there are so many people who want to be on reality TV. And they're all insane because it's like, why? Why would you want, especially the ones, not the ones that are like a competition show or whatever, but like ones where you, they see, you're on, they're following you all the time. Yeah. And like, they see you when you wake up and all the bad stuff that you do, they just capture it and show it. I mean, I don't feel it. I mean, and then it's like, oh, it's editing, but it's not. I mean, human beings do horrible embarrassing things all the time and the thing where you can hear all the people talking shit on you yeah <laughs> that's something i don't want no like i fully accept that people shit talk me even people who i truly love all the time and i think that's fine but i don't want to ever hear about it but we're all we're all difficult aren't we i mean it's, obviously we're going to be complaining about each other if only just muttering under our breath about each other but this idea that uh you know i know a lot of writers who you know, people my age and older who have Google alerts set up uh, so that when they get mentioned on the internet, they they get an alert and they go and read it, and then they can ha- they can express they can experience emotions based <laughs> yes. on that, and that sounds like a recipe for for madness to me. Yeah, I mean, I used to have one for my name, but it didn't work. Oh, really? Like, 
I would have to Google myself on top of my Google alert, which is, that's just extra work for me. And so I was just like, I just, I undid it. It would be like two days later, an article that I knew that I had written, you know, and then I'd be like, hey, someone on the LA Review of Books said your name. And it'd be like, no, it was me. (laughs) Leave me alone, Google. I don't want these emails anymore. I mean, but it wasn't any lack of like vanity by any means. It was just like, this does not work to see to feed my vanity at all i'm just a kind of i i've been reflecting on this strange like relationship between self-love and self-disgust they're not opposites <laughs> no you, you know what i mean because this 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 uh, phenomenon of hearing my own voice and being grossed out by it it actually doesn't make sense considering as my wife would say how how marvelous i think i am you know that like <laughs> Like, I like doing the stuff that I do, and when I'm doing it, I'm not thinking, oh, I bet this is shit. I'm just going ahead and doing it, and then putting it out there and not worrying about whether or not it's shit. But the sound of my own voice right after I say something, there's something about that instant feedback that I find totally frightening. Well, I feel like hearing yourself, like if I were to listen to this again, I probably would have a moment, which I will, but I probably would have a moment of being like, ugh, yuck. But then I would... They'll be like, oh, I'm pretty funny and okay. But like (laughs) the hearing yourself on the phone, like talking to your wife, like when you're, you're trying to be like, hi, I'm being, I'm performing caring husband right now. Like, I don't know. There's something like you hear it back and it sounds like false and wrong. And like, you're really not performing the thing that you're trying to perform at that moment. That's, I feel like that's the like, like you don't want to, you don't want to hear yourself when you're trying to be a genuine person. Well, I think the word perform is the key in what you just said because it does feel like it does feel like I'm uh um putting on a little show. When in fact, <laughs> yeah. you know, what I'm really doing is like I really am being about as earnest and straightforward as I as I am with the person I know best in the world. So, it's as far from an actual performance as can be imagined, but when you hear yourself and I hear, hear myself, it does feel like that. You know, it does feel like I was putting on a little show and I'm actually not very good at it. (laughs) (laughs) Like, but the phone is weird. Like me and my brothers make fun of my mom all the time when she's on the phone, (laughs) which is rude. But like, because she goes like, "Uh uh-huh, 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 like the whole time (laughs) she's talking on the phone. And she's not like, she's not, it's not like a person who does that, who's like, I'm waiting for you to stop talking so that. I can talk, you know, like people who have those like yeah. nervous ticks like that. Like, it's not like that. I feel like it's just sort of like this um, anxious, like checking in at every moment. Like I'm getting what you're saying. I'm hearing you, but like hearing just her side of the conversation for me and my brothers is very, very funny. But so I think it's like weird phone ticks like that. Like I wouldn't want to hear myself going, uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. Well, I think it's this the similar similar phenomenon is uh, overhearing two people talking at a restaurant in the next table and just thinking these people are idiots they're yeah. idiots listen to their stupid conversation but then you know your own conversation probably other people's conversations probably feel stupid unless they are you and me talking right now which is of course extraordinarily interesting i remember once me and molly were at bridge pizza molly leach and yeah we were I don't know what we were talking about, but then she was like, No offense to us, Alice, but if I were anyone else in this restaurant, I would think we were total idiots. <laughs> <laughs> it was like no offense to us. But and and the like the other day I was at I was like having a margarita at this restaurant in Hollywood or like Los Feliz Silver Lake type area. It doesn't really matter where it was, I guess, in Los Angeles. And these hip people were talking about choosing a psychologist using Google Images. (laughs) 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 I mean, honestly, when I think about it, I can get it in a non like gross way where you want kind of want to know what you're getting. If you're going to be talking to this person, tell them your secrets. But they were like, well, but how did you choose your person and they were like google images and it was like yeah me too and all of them had to have been like yeah that's the obvious way to choose one choose like a young good looking woman because <laughs> they were all young good looking women so they were like we want i want someone like me 
someone relatable, as as a undergraduate fiction workshop student would say. Right. It's like I like someone. Right. <laughs> someone relatable. Totally. Yeah. Uh, no, that's. I mean, I, I, you know, I confess to, I confess to having Google image search my therapist before, before uh, getting myself set up with her. Although the main reason that I went with her is that um, her other business was photography, and I'm into photography, so that was relatable. Yeah. Well, I mean, you want someone who you can build like a relationship with, who you could relate to. Yeah. I think that's, it was like, it was a thing where I was over here. It was exactly that thing where I was overhearing it and I was like, these people sound really stupid. But if I was in that conversation, I don't think I would be like, we're shallow freaks. <laughs> I would just be like, we're just sharing tips. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> all you hear of these people, you think you're building a personality for them based on, you know, the, the, the verbal equivalent of like scratching their ass in public, you know, like the. That you don't you don't actually know what the what, what the layers are like. I mean, I have that sensation all the time because you know, like that old well, people do it like on Twitter or whatever. But that old website overheard in New York. <laughs> I don't remember that. It was, I mean, it was like a kind of probably mid two thousands thing where people would just submit conversations they heard in New York, and it would be like it'd be like older gay, like the the people who were saying it were like very uh coarse stereotypes yeah. like they'd be like well first the older gay said this and then the tourist said that you know like and and it was just like you know uh stock characters you'd see in new york and um i would i think about that website all the time because i'm like how many times have i been that loud talking idiot who people like tweet or whatever, because <laughs> yeah. I do that all the time. I tweet about shit I hear on the bus, like, because it's just like, I just feel like hearing the, like, snippets of conversation, you're never, it's always going to sound totally ridiculous. Well, and what's great about reading that on Twitter, one of the things I love about Twitter is that it's like a vehicle for artful decontextualization, you know, <laughs> yeah. seeing these little, um, someone has found something vaguely interesting on the sidewalk that if you if you were to, if you were to pull back from the from this instagram photo that they put or you know whatever you call a, a photo that is put on twitter even whether or not it goes through instagram that you it would just be part of you know like urban blandness um but it, it would blend in but it becomes this little focused thing that comes down the pike from the from the personality of someone whom you know and expect certain things from I like that. I like the idea that like some of the meaning is being stripped from it, from the thing that you're seeing, just because it's such a small snippet, whether it's text or a photo or what have you. Um, but then again, you're it's making you create a context for yourself, and that's fun. Well, it's poetic. I mean, in a real way. Like I think that like contemporary poetry has a lot to do with collage, mm -hmm. and you know, dealing with the different dictions and kinds of information that we encounter in sure. society in modern society and so like if there is something about like the overheard well people say that about lyric poetry that it is the overheard conversation mm -hmm. is that's what a lyric poem is is you know an, an overheard address you are you are never the you of the poem the reader isn't the you yeah, i don't know who sense. says that I might have made it up. Yeah, I'm pretty sure someone told it to me. Did. That's cool. <laughs> I didn't. I have no source for that information. Well, I, I you know, I, I, I think that Twitter, like uh, a lot of roughly equivalent, f uh, you know, oral and overheard forms before it, uh, em embraces colloquial grammar and uh, punctuation and spelling and so on. Like you get used to someone's intentional misspellings right intentional it ch the choice the in the choices in the sort of sphere of informality that people make are part of their self-presentation are part of their aesthetic on twitter yeah totally i mean like i think there are like i always i think about the tweet as a form like not super seriously but like my impulse to workshop tweets is <laughs> like i it, but the thing about the tweet is that it's a, you can't revise it yeah. You do it and then it's done. And it's like, if it's not good, it's over, you know? Yeah. My, but, like, the, the but 
my workshopping things are often like, get rid of that punctuation. You don't need it. You know, like, <laughs> like, try, like things about humor that are like, you, you want this to be less, to be less smart. You know, you want it to seem more off the cuff and right. unconscious because it's just a tweet, you know, but like, I'm like encouraging them to revise for unselfconsciousness. Yeah. This ain't a cover letter, bro. <laughs> right. For a job, you know, it's Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, the idea of uh, editing a tweet, I think some news came down that I think Twitterific. I don't use Twitterific, but that but they have added edit tweet. Yeah. And I was like, oh shit, ah! it's going to change everything. But then it turns out it doesn't actually edit the tweet. It the 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 GUI makes it seem like you're editing the tweet, but what it's actually doing is deleting it and deleting re and resending and resending re it. Yeah. So I'm not doing I that. I do that from time to time, delete and resend if there's like a typo or whatever. Yeah, I do too. But right, only right after you do it. But you it. have to do it right away. Yeah. Because people will notice. The tweet that I sent this week that I was most excited about, I mm -hmm. I had a misspelling in. But by the time I, I realized it, it had already been faved a few times and I didn't want to. Yeah. You're never going to get those faves back, you know. And people are going to be like, <laughs> you nerd. Yeah. Look <laughs> are, at you Were you caring. really embarrassed <laughs> by your Twitter? <laughs> You know, typo. You and got, like you got caught giving a shit. Yeah, <laughs> that's the worst. Because that's the thing I'm most afraid of. I mean, I don't want anyone to think I ever make mistakes, but I also don't want them to think I care if I do. Right, right. And then you know, you you. I, one of the things I like about it is that you have to accept that you are your mistakes. You know. Yeah. Um, and you are your kind of blemishes, and you are your vanity. And uh, that's for I think for some people that's really liberating. But I've talked to you know other people who I think would be, in terms of the way they think and the way they think about language, and their the way language is appealing to them, that they would really be into Twitter. But that's kind of a block for them. Yeah, you know that they really don't like to be unedited in public. I feel like I'm a moderate Twitter perfectionist. Like I'll delete tweets that no one liked sometimes. <laughs> You know, or like I've seen them disappear from my timeline as I'm looking at them. Yeah, because it's just like I I think better. I think twice of that, but but I think you do have to let go to some extent. You got to accept that it, this is just yeah. a stream of absolutely unthought through thoughts. Yeah, it's a it's a good thing to exist. I think I love it. I love Twitter. Right, Everyone have, knows that. I have a couple of things I wanted to talk to you about. Um, okay. Two of which you sort of touched on already, but I'll get back to those. Uh, but I wanted to ask, do you want to talk about this? You tweeted, why do you, <laughs> <laughs> you, say, you said this is a hard topic to, to broach, but why are, was it essentially why are men so into history? Yeah, why do men love history? I mean, this is something that I've thought about literally my entire life. I mean, like my brothers and my dad who are all, I mean, they're so individually individual but to me they're all the same and they like all the same shit which is like star wars and like world war Two. like <laughs> to me like they're just like ah it's so boring they just want to watch indiana jones like all day and talk about it and like <laughs> like one time i remember i was like nine years old or less i was i was little and my i i was walking somewhere with my big brother and my dad and i said so like, why did World War Two start? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. They talked for like two hours. It was unbelievable. I mean, my big brother was about 13. My dad was probably 50, you know, whatever. But like they talked for so long. I could not even I couldn't believe it. I stopped <laughs> listening almost immediately. I thought the question would be relatively simple. It was like, well, it all goes back to. Otto von Bismarck, you know, like they were like, <laughs> it was, it was crazy. But I mean, I think history is weird. It's like, there's no English literature channel, you know, <laughs> there's not, there really there's is. no geometry channel. <laughs> Why is there the history channel? You know? And I mean, I guess they just do like pawn shop shows now as Chuck Grassley's Twitter has belligerently complained about but like i mean i think about like i have a degree in history i'm the only person in my family who does not <laughs> none of my brother i mean because i have what they call issues you know but like uh 
it, I don't, I feel like I never got it as a discipline. I never understood what so, we were there to do. So why did you, why did you major in it? Like what did, what was the original appeal and how did it not measure up to that? To, well, to I applied for, for college by myself when I was 16, you know, no one helped me or told me what to do, which is like pretty normal, I think. But like, so I was like, what's my, they asked like on the university of Nebraska application, they were like, what major do you want? And I was like, what's my best class history. And I, I really loved history in high school because it had a lot to do with analysis and writing and it, and making connections, you know, about, and, you know, about different spheres of life that you wouldn't necessarily think were connected. Um, I was interested in government and policy. So it was like, okay, well this makes sense to me, but uh, I just felt like everyone who was in my classes was like a literal minded, boring dork who just like, <laughs> wanted to talk about boring things because like history, I don't know, as a discipline in a certain way, I think it's bankrupt, which like, <laughs> I mean, I, that's quite the mic drop there, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just mean that like things are changing within it probably, but I feel like, it should be, you know, interdisciplinary and, you know, have to do with, like, a lot more than just, like, what happened according to white people. Well, you that's know? just the thing, that, that the idea that history is what happened is inherently absurd. Because of course yes. you don't know what happened, and even when even when you have corroborating sources, you don't know what happened. You know, a, you know a version of you know you know you know a sort of consensus about what happened, but there's all this other shit going on that has nothing to do with that thing. And I think my I mean my feeling about this, and I'll make some sort of silly generalizations as I say this, but but my answer to the question posed on Twitter is I think at least in our culture, women are more willing to admit that everything is just crazy chaos and and thus <laughs> and thus to kind of react to it in the moment whereas i feel like part of american masculinity in our age involves thinking that things can be organized and settled like we can get this thing done and then it'll be done <laughs> and then we'll know it right and it's right. like i think about um you know though i'm sure there are many women who have done this it's usually men who like say start a company and then really want their sons to take it over you know when they <laughs> retire like this idea that that it is a virtue to have continuity and to maintain continuity and that there that that we like to think that we're looking at the big picture and that it's always you know everything is forever the same and that we actually know something you know what i mean well there's something like i have a lot of thoughts on this cuz like the Oh, uh, where was I going? Like, I think one reason history appeals to men is because it's about men, mostly. Uh, sure. You, you know, I mean, like, there, it's like, clearly, it, it's kind of marked itself as like a male thing, because it's like, well, it's all about men. There's no women in it other than like Cleopatra, you know, or whoever. And like... And yes, there is something about being, you know, finding the answer and, and saying, you know, here's what happened and here's why it happened. We all know. And there's something to do with like this, this sort of like privilege of sort of taking the reins of the narrative has been, you know, given to historically white men. And I kind of, I mean, I do think about this thing about seriousness because I think about seriousness all the time, like as a virtue. Yeah. And I think that. And I should add, this is. I think you're responding to uh, one of your one of your responses on Twitter was to say that it it appeals to the the male myth of of seriousness. Because seriousness is not real. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing I find funnier than some fucking bullshit serious movie or whatever the fuck like what does it mean to be serious you know i mean i think like 
history as being serious because it's about things that are typically bummers, <laughs> war, government making, you know, like, oh, very serious domains, you know, yeah. like, because I, I just read this book and it was medium to bad, uh, by Howard Bloom called American Lightning about the LA Times bombing of 1910. Yeah. Um, and it was like, in a certain way, I'm going to write something, not about it, but um, involving it. But like, in a certain way, it was good because it was an interesting sort of gambit about like toward bringing together all of these different figures who were kind of remaking the 20th century because right. he, he talked about um, Billy Burns, who was America's most famous detective, uh, W.D. Griffith, you know, the father of the American yeah, cinema yeah. and uh, Clarence Darrow, the famous attorney. Right. So like, uh, and, and he brought them all together. And so in a certain way, I thought it was interesting, but I thought the writing was like incredibly corny because it was just like, so novelesque and and that was clearly what it was trying to do but it would be like billy burns looked out over the water and considered this and it's like he did were you there you know like no he didn't i mean maybe he did but like you you, you don't know what he was thinking about and and it would be like billy burns went to see this movie but he might as well have seen this other movie by gw griffith and it's like what like i don't know like like it's it was trying really, really hard, but like I was thinking, like I feel we're like all, this... we're all white men here. We know what each other are like. Of course, right. he would have I... gone to see that movie. <laughs> I feel like this book and a lot of pop history books, more like dads would be interested in reading than like you know um, some like uh, some historical novel that recently came out, like. I, I have no idea what I'm thinking of. Like, uh, this should be easy, but it isn't. <laughs> like, a recent novel. I don't know, like, Ragtime by E.L. Dr. Al. Like, whatever. Right. Uh, like, th like, more dads would want to read that book because it, like, was true and really happened. Even yeah. though all it was was trying to emulate a novel and kind of clumsily doing it because he was so constrained by history. I actually, um, one of the first book reviews I wrote and got paid for was in my college alumni magazine and a, mm -hmm. a famous uh, pop history writer who was a professor where I went to college wrote a new book uh, about uh, World War II, about specifically about the Holocaust. And I had read a previous book of his and liked it. And uh, uh, so I agreed to review it. And it kind of wasn't very good. And, <laughs> and the problem was that he decided to take that thing that historians do, which is the kind of, that kind of you are there reporting. Right. You know, and actually turn it into like a first person, not first person, but like a, a third limited fictionalized version of what he thought happened. Um, right. And of course, he's not any good at it. He's not any good at writing fiction. He's an, right. he's an historian, but he—it was like that. Taking that extra step made him do something that he was completely incompetent at. And so I basically <laughs> said this in the review, and they turns out <laughs> they do not want negative reviews of their own faculty in the alumni <laughs> magazine. So I was never asked to to write it again, uh, to write for them again. But that that you know that phenomenon of like, I I I like I don't read history. I almost never read history. Um, I might read sort of contemporary cultural criticism of the kind that you write. Um, and I'm more interested in like people talking with great excitement about things that are happening right now and things that people are making. Um, but when I do like a work of history, it usually has a layer of self-doubt on it, a layer of self-consciousness about like, let's try and figure out what might have happened and what this might meant. But that tone of, we now know that you know, it's like you only yeah. know that until the until the contradictory evidence appears or until our culture changes and we don't see events like that in the same light anymore. And then it will become obvious something opposite of that is going to become obvious to us. And can't you see that when you're writing that <laughs> sentence? Isn't it obvious to you that that's not going to be true in 50 years because history is just not a thing that you can say that about? Right. I mean, I think there are some things about uh, 
textual analysis and like um yeah like sort of like revisiting things that have previously been thought to be true or or things about you know like I don't know I guess I tended when I was in college to be interested in like policy type things in American history you know like uh not in like a really like deep and dirty way about like and then it went to this committee, you know, like whatever, who cares? But like, uh, but more about kind of the varying forces and, you know, especially American political life that caused certain Supreme Court decisions or certain legislation to, I don't know, sink or float. Yeah. Like I wrote my major sort of piece, my what they call the capstone project at Nebraska, which is your, your, you have to take a seminar in your major and then write a long paper. So it's like a thesis esque sort of assignment. Um, it's like a twenty page paper, maybe. Uh, I wrote it. Well, in in Nebraska, at least when I went there, you had your capstone class in history in your sophomore year, which makes no <laughs> sense. It was like I don't know. Let's just throw the seminar in there in the middle. And then you'll be done with it and write a horrible paper you'll never be able to use. But, like, <laughs> I wrote about um, Nebraska's two senators in the fight for the League of Nations because they were, like, uh, I won't be able to remember even their names. But um, one of them was Woodrow Wilson's main Democrat on the floor, and the other was uh, an irreconcilable who would not sign the Treaty of Versailles under any means, you know, a Republican. So like, and I had access to all of their, all of old newspapers and lots of their papers because they were at the University of Nebraska libraries where my parents happened to work. And I really liked how it turned out. And it was actually very fun to work on. And actually my professor said, like, you could try to get this in Nebraska history, which is like the Nebraska history, uh, whatever associations, Nebraska Historical Society's uh, publication. But I said, no, I'm only 17, and I didn't do anything with it. (laughs) (laughs) I never tried. That was incorrect. But it doesn't matter. But well, you know, it's this is a version of what you do now about popular culture. The way you write about popular culture is, you know, you're you're doing very close analysis of all the materials in hand, and you know, I think I think writing really intelligently on a subject that most people don't bother writing intelligently about. I thought that it did have something, you know, that excited me, which was that, which was finding, you know, patterns and connections that might not immediately be obvious that, you know, were relevant to me as a person who lived in Nebraska, that I, that if I had just read, you know, through, uh, you know, the Wikipedia page about the Treaty of Versailles that I would not have known. So, so it felt like, you know, okay, well, I'm doing some real work here. I'm actually, you know, synthesizing something about history that, you know, maybe hasn't been said a million times, but I don't feel like I, I felt that very many other times studying history, which is probably my fault. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's not like that's anyone's fault for that. I didn't learn anything in college, but I don't know. It's a little bit, I'm very conflicted on the subject of history as a subject. <laughs> how, how many, how many creative people do you know who actually, who actually did who actually say, yeah, I learned a lot in college. I spent my time well in college and learned a great deal. I know. I don't know. There probably are some who I know who are like, I did it. I achieved, <laughs> I achieved college. I went to all of my classes and I got straight A's and I learned a lot. Bring these unicorns to me. I wasn't that guy. Not me. <laughs> I well, didn't this, learn anything. Um, this leads me to um, ask you about your... And I'll put the, a link to this in the show notes, but about the piece you just put in the LARB um, okay. on the phenomenon of the dead girl show for the for mm-hmm. the uninitiated. Could you like give a quick summary of it? I feel like I feel like you asking your dad <laughs> and your brother to explain World War Two, but still, <laughs> the dead girl show is a phenomenon that um, while there are many precursors in our culture, for all for my purposes began with Twin Peaks, yeah, which is the formula that uh, you discover, A, the body of a dead teenage girl 
Uh, and that is the entire spark of the plot of the television show. So it's usually at least a season-long arc of trying to discover who murdered this dead girl. Right. That is in a, in a nutshell. And there have been many, many examples since then. Veronica Mars, The Killing, True Detective, Pretty Little Liars, uh, Top of the Lake, which is one of your favorites, I know. Yeah, I do um, like that show. All kind of at least borrow from that formula. Yeah, so I, I I hadn't you know this was a um, a theme I hadn't put I've seen several of these shows but I'd never put that together. Um, but you're talking here about the uh, you're quoting Grill Marcus in there. That's always that's always a good idea. Um, but I haven't seen True Detective yet. You don't mm. like it. <laughs> I don't like it. Well, the thing about it is that if everyone else liked it less, I could like it more. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. All right. They've they've ruined it for me. I mean, <laughs> I don't want to blame anyone, but I don't think it is a particularly well written or original show. I think it is doing some things well. You know, the Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey are very good in it, and it's you know set in Southern Louisiana. It's very pretty. You know, well well shot. Uh, you know, then there are cool things to do with that kind of landscape. But really, I mean, I had a tweet that was like, which is more entertaining, watching True Detective or playing Candy Crush? I think you know the answer. <laughs> it's like, which in our contemporary of our like contemporary cultural manias is more fulfilling for me, playing Candy Crush? And that's for real. <laughs> Would you believe that I have never played Candy Crush? Don't start. No, I'm not going to. <laughs> there has like 800 levels. You'll never, ever, ever do anything again this is why i did play uh threes for about a week with that number game and um mm -hmm. it was just it was it was just eating me alive because it never stops their go the goals are you can just keep going and you can get you can reach new goals and you can always do a little better and um it's hor it's horrifying yes i agree i like a game where i can finish it yeah do you play many games um, no, I don't play really any video games, you know, like on a console or whatever. I'm, but I do play, so I shouldn't say no. I do play a lot of puzzle games on my phone, but I've actually recently, um, not been doing that. Like I quit Candy Crush more or less and I was playing 2048, which is a threes ripoff. Yeah. My kids I, are playing that. I got to 2048 a bunch of times, and then I was like, I mean, it still is like that, where it's like, oh, keep going, be better. But I was like, no, I already did the thing that's in your name. Yeah. So I stopped playing that, too. It was like a weird like palate cleanser. It made me not want to play games anymore, which is good because I'm obsessed with games, and I'm extremely good at them. Oh, are you? Yes. <laughs> you... <laughs> You uh, you made some gag about uh, walking in front between your roommate and the television when he was playing a video game. Yeah, he was. He told me I was endangering the citizens of Gotham. <laughs> yeah. He loves I, video games. I asked because I, you know, I grew up playing the first generation of game, video games, and I love them. I played Atari, uh, the Atari Twenty Six Hundred, obsessively, and um. You know, I think like a lot of people my age kind of like lost interest in when I started college. But th at that point, there were people a little bit younger than me were playing much more engaging games. And they became the people who became the sort of first wave of people who kind of made games a cultural phenomenon. Um, yeah. But I've been playing a few more of them simply because they're getting really narratively interesting. And I find that um, my creative writing students... Uh, I think a lot of, a lot of, you know, uh, creative writing academics I know complain about students uh, that students are not well read, um, which is a legitimate complaint that I think everyone ought to be encouraged to read more. But they're really literate in a lot of other types of narratives. You yeah, know, I, f I feel like uh, I was talking to my wife about this um, when I was sort of quetching about academia and whether or not it's a. Um, whether or not this, the, the academic study of literature actually supports and sustains the creation of literature, the answer being maybe no. But, <laughs> um, but I do think that like Harry Potter fan fiction is probably a more important driving force in shaping the, you know, the writers of, uh, who, are, who are starting to come of age now than, say, any literary criticism they're ever going to write. 
because well, that's a serious miss thing too, isn't it? Where it's like, oh, these children do not read books, you know. And I mean, I'm not saying I don't like books, but it's like, I mean, I think that that's like a very common thing, like undercutting people's different kinds of literacy and making hierarchies, like, is a common sort of seriousness gambit that I'm more. I should stop saying the word gambit and using it incorrectly, but that I like. I am suspicious of, even though, of course, like people should read books. You know, I love books. Right. Obviously. Yeah. But, you know, there's, you know, when I was, I, we had this conversation in my workshop uh, yesterday, someone, um, we were, we had been reading stories out of an anthology and the students had been leading discussion on different days. Everyone had to do it once. So, and the student asked if she could bring something in that wasn't in the anthology. And what she brought in was a science fiction story written by a friend of hers. And it was not great, uh, you know, it was flawed in a lot of ways, but it, we ended up having this interesting discussion about the subgenre of being alone, being the last person alive on the ship. Mm-hmm. And I began to think about how this sort of, uh, ex- this sort of exploration of solitude is kind of interesting. And uh, a lot of the examples we were thinking of were not literature, they were films and video games. Yeah, um, but when I brought up a, a couple of video games that did this, people got kind of excited about it, like that this was like a thing that we could talk about that would inform our decision of, or a discussion about uh, about writing fiction. But it did; it really did. I think there's something to be learned there. I think all these different narrative forms are, you know, they kind of cross pollinate in interesting ways, or they ought to. Well, more and more, I'm really interested in um, like literature that uses uh, tropes in a uses cultural tropes in a very free way, you know. And, I mean, that often includes genre literature, detective novels, that it's like uh, that they're not in any way ashamed of using those tropes. Those tropes aren't invisible. Um, Because, I don't know, I I think about, like, the literary novel. I have this sort of spiel about it, kind of, but, like, I feel like contemporary literary novels are often bad. I mean, everyone knows that, but because they're too long. You'd be surprised. (laughs) You'd be surprised how many people don't want to know that. They're way too long. And that's some sort of publishing industry Kool-Aid that everyone is drinking about. Like, everyone loves to read long novels. Why? I don't. But then, but also, so they're way too long. And I feel like it has something to do with, like, this sort of movie emulation because like i feel like there are always like corny subplots or like the ending is really happy or like whatever that that they're very baggy because they sort of are emulating this feeling that people want to get from movies you know which is like i want to feel good and i want to lose myself in this where like i feel like especially like mid-century novels you know like i'm thinking about like muriel Spark or like even like Charles Portis, like who are who mm. could not be more different, but like the that they write short novels that have a tendency toward tightness that are about like bad things happening and that are un, unexpected weird crap happening. And yeah. like I feel like contemporary novels, you know, they don't borrow from that most of the time. They're sort of like they're borrowing much more from a narrative structure that we've learned from movies because like everyone wants their book to become a movie and become rich. And part of the problem with that is that there are things that movies are good at that books are not good at. And so yeah. when you try to emulate those things, you, ha- you, you have to use way more of your, of your mental energy to create your version of that thing that a film can do almost effortlessly because it's using sound and, and uh, visuals. And, you know, it's a different medium entirely. Whereas the things yeah. that fiction does really well, you know, the kind of um, reflecting of consciousness – the exploration of different sort of uh, um, way, ways of using and seeing and hearing language. I mean, that's what it's for. You know, that's what a written narrative does. And there are so many novels nowadays about good-looking people, and it's like all movies are about good-looking people, you know? What's great about a novel is that people can be ugly, and you like don't even have to look at them. You could just imagine them, yeah. you know? Well, can you, what are, you, are you thinking of something, <laughs> a novel in particular, about good-looking well, people? The one that I'm not really thinking about, about good-looking people, most novels nowadays are about good-looking people, and maybe always, but, like, I feel like 
more now. But like it, the Billy Lynn is the book that I think about. Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. walk. I haven't Have read you it. read it? No. Mm, I mean, I feel like it has things about it that are very good. Like, because, you know, it's about the Iraq War. It talks about, you know, sort of like football as sort of a military spectacle. And like, it's stuff about football, I think, is very smart. But like, there's a part where like Billy Lynn is like the very like callow 19 year old, you know, protagonist. Like, he like falls in love with a Dallas Cowboys cheerleader. No, thanks. You know, like, I mean, it's not even that I like, I don't even feel like in a feminist way irritated by that, just in a like readerly way. Yeah. Like, what a fantasy, you know, and that that would work so much better in a movie than in a book. Because in a movie, you're like rooting for the guy and you're like ready to go with it. But in a book that's like a very serious book about the Iraq war, like, I don't want to read some weird fantasy fulfillment about this weird 19-year-old fucking a Dallas Cowboys cheerleader. I don't. <laughs> I don't want to either. <laughs> I don't want to read it. No. <laughs> I would rather, like, I would, well, see, because when I was reading it, it was like, are you kidding me? This guy's going to hook up with a Dallas Cowboys cheerleader. And what I thought was would happen was that she would, like, fuck with him or try to take all of his money or something and then it would be like wow this is really telling me that war is hell you know i thought it was gonna be like (laughs) it thought it was gonna be like you know even more like heartbreak but it was just like no and then they were fell in love why (laughs) (laughs) why (laughs) that was a spoiler but no no matter that's quite all right (laughs) uh we, I kind of, I kind of have more to talk to you about. You, um, we have to talk about food a little bit. This is the food podcast. Oh yeah. But you did you once again you tw- you you tweeted you tweeted right into my hands. Um, <laughs> you tweeted something about uh um about hating to eat the food you cooked. <laughs> so, um, what um what uh, what what had you just made that you were that you were forcing down your gullet? I hadn't just made anything. It was just that, like, I've been, you know, I quit my job, so I've just been writing from home, like, working from home, and I have, you know, a pretty fixed income, and so I can't go eat wherever I want, and I'm not working in the food and, like, the service industry anymore where I get a staff meal every day, you know? And so, and, like, I don't know how to make food, you know? Like, where (laughs) people learn this and you so know I, you know how to bring it to people on a plate right right and then like i get to eat some of it too but like <laughs> i have like two things that i know how to make and i have i thought i would never grow tired of them and i have <laughs> and it just makes me sad to think about making them and eating them and like sometimes i just like will be like I can't. I'm not going to eat anything. And I know that that sounds really bad, but like, uh, it's just like. What are the I'm, What are the two things? What are the two things? Okay, like, well, I guess it's like more than two things, but they're basically variations on a theme. But like, I can make like beans and rice. I have my one recipe yeah. that I like, and I have some bizarre vegetable sort of stir fry esque pasta that I can do. I can do those things, but. I don't know. I just don't, I don't feel like I ever learned like, well, how to make food, but also like how to buy food, you know, like how, what, what do people do? Like when they want to eat a certain food, like, do they go buy that food specifically or do they like look in their fridge and they're like, well, I have, we have these things. We can make this food. Can you tell me? <laughs> I don't know. I don't get it. You know, our, our staples are pretty much the same as yours actually. It's beans and rice and a stir fry, and it's it's become. Like it's makes be- me want to cry. Like you just saying that. It's just like, <laughs> well, something else. <laughs> I had I had this experience when I was I had a, a really good experience my after my sophomore year in college. I mm-hmm. decided not to go and live at home. I was going to live on cam- not on campus, but I was I went to school in Philadelphia, so I was going to live in West Philly for the summer, and uh, I had a job like a work study job at school. And, uh, um, and I was in this big, these, these guys who were like, they weren't, (laughs) they didn't manage to get into any fraternities. So they started their own. (laughs) I've seen that movie. Fake fraternity. It was like six or seven bros. And they had animal house. No, it was just, (laughs) 
it was named after uh oh that's right that is the plot of animal house isn't it and old school it's actually yeah, the plot of a lot of things well it was it was the plot of the the life of these young men and so they uh and they did really did not have their shit together they did have t-shirts and it made with the address written on the t-shirts and, we would, <laughs> and they would later hire my band to play at a horrible party there but anyway um I subletted a room from them, and they they just didn't have their shit together, and they didn't get people to sublet in time. So there were only two people rattling around in this huge house, and it was me and this woman named Jen, and she was an extraordinary cook. And she just taught me – like we ate together. Me and her and sometimes me and her and her boyfriend would like eat these amazing meals that she made. And over the course of the summer, she taught me all these basics about about cooking and how like you can – how not to follow a recipe, how to sort of instinctively know like what what stuff you can put in that will taste good together and so on. So I'm, I'm actually fairly skillful as a cook, and my wife doesn't really like to cook. So um, she's she's good at it, but doesn't enjoy it the way I do. Um, but I so I can we can do variety if we want, but then we had kids, and then they're <laughs> they're fussy. They have. They have things they don't want to eat or insist on eating. And so the range of things that, like, if we want to sit down and have dinner together, the four of us as a family, you know, (laughs) which is, I know it's hard for people to do. And, um, but I think we do it a lot more than most families manage to be able to. So I feel very lucky, but it does mean that we have a certain just number of things that, like, I can always make a pasta and we'll all eat it. I can always make a stir fry and we'll all eat it. Um, but other things, you know, if I want something unusual to eat, we're either going out or yeah. uh, more likely I make multiple meals for different people. You know? Yeah. Which is. I like going to a restaurant. I like having them make the food for me and then <laughs> yes. give it to me. That's what I like. <laughs> I love that. It's so fun. <laughs> but you can't do it all the time, you know? Some people yeah. can, but I can't. Yeah, I understand. Not I a actually, millionaire. We actually got a um, comment on the Facebook that I was going to read. What? My friend Stephanie Meisner, uh, who lives in New York City and is a milliner slash writer. Oh. Uh, she says that she's eat, mostly eating defrosted veggie chili, which is mostly good. Where do you stand on the crock pot? She wants to know. I'm suspicious, but coming around. I just wanted to say that I am very fond of the crock pot. Um, my wife bought one and started making whenever we have a party, which we do twice a year. We have our writer's party in the spring, which will be next week. And we have a, a Christmas of Hanukkah sort of winter holiday for whoever is left in town party. And each time we, she makes this uh, pulled pork in the crock pot. And it just sits there all day and it makes the house. You just put the, you know, you put a roast in there and a pork roast in there and then you just throw in you know, spices and onions and stuff, big chunks of of stuff, and uh, just cook it all day long, and it smells awesome. The crock pot makes your house smell really good. Cooking yeah. it slowly makes your house smell good. I have no opinion on crock pots. You should get a crock pot. I don't own one. Yeah, maybe. They're probably like 30 cents at Goodwill, right? <laughs> yeah, probably. That seems like a thing you'd buy at Goodwill, for sure. I actually, I don't even think they're very expensive new, so they're probably quite quite cheap used. I just picture like everyone's crock pot, like my dad's crock pot. I'm pretty sure that's how he makes roast beef. Yeah. I don't know. Is your dad the family cook or do both your parents? Yeah. Cook? My mom will not cook. I mean, she can, but she refuses. Well, because <laughs> I was like, she was like, you don't have to marry a man who knows how to cook. You just have to marry one who's willing to learn. <laughs> she was like, I'm not doing this. Um, so my dad learned to cook. But uh, I don't know. I mean, yeah, my dad, but he's like my little cousin, my seven-year-old cousin Anderson, he said, when I was just recently visiting them, he said, Bob is a steak freak, <laughs> which is like the best description of my dad I've ever heard. <laughs> Bob is a steak freak. Um, cause my dad is a steak freak and he's from Texas and he loves to grill and every day in the summer he will make steak, which is incredibly, uh, decadent, but I did not know that growing up. <laughs> Me and my brothers would be like, make us beefaroni. We don't want steak. We were like such little dicks about it. Uh, cause you know, 
You can't have steak every day. No. I mean, yeah, you can. You easily can, but maybe they do in Texas. Didn't want to, or like you know, like in Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> they eat steak every day. Yeah, I think meat every day was definitely a thing uh, when I was growing up. I think we're, those were the uh, f- the food groups, the days of the f- of the four food groups that had to be represented in every meal. Yeah. And, uh, um, and my my mother was uh, my mother's a good cook. She was very responsible in her cooking. She was trying to give us proper nutrition. But now, as a man in his forties, uh, eating meat ever is probably not remotely necessary, and eating it every day is definitely not necessary. So it's sort I mean, of a treat. You should get so. enough protein, which is very difficult. Not eating meat, or but you don't have to eat a steak every day. Definitely yeah, not. There's a, there's a pretty big gray area between the <laughs> <Yeah>. two. <laughs> between like getting enough protein and eating a giant steak every day, being a total steak freak. At the end of your life, you should get to see, you should get to walk around in a pasture you know, <laughs> that contains the equivalent of all the animals you've eaten your entire life. Not as, I'm, not, like, I'm not a vegetarian. I don't think that this is punishment or anything. I just think that would right. be an, an interesting experience to have. I think about like on cooking shows or whatever when, when they're like, the average American eats 17 pounds of potatoes every year. And uh, whenever I hear it, I always think like, yeah, but I mean, it's over a whole year. Like, it never <laughs> sounds like a lot to me. Yeah. Whenever they're, they're like, you ate eight pounds of cheese last month. I'm like, but I mean, it wasn't in one day. You know? <laughs> like, to me, it always sounds fine, normal, moderate. And that, you know, eight pounds of cheese for, that's, I can even see like a bingy weekend, like a really <laughs> cheesy weekend, you know? Yeah, I mean, if you have one for every meal and two snacks. Yeah, I think in general, just people, we have to eat a lot of goddamn food. It's extraordinary how much of this shit we need to shovel into ourselves in order to keep going. Yeah, when I was visiting my friends, well, it was when I was in, at AWP in Seattle, but me and my friends went to get breakfast, and I was looking at the menu, and I was like, I just want to eat enough so that I'm not hungry for a while. And they were like, <laughs> that's the goal of eating every day. <laughs> I was like trying to find the perfect menu item that would keep me sated for a while. Not forever. <laughs> but just for a little while. Uh, <laughs> well, um if I uh, if I actually manage to come out to LA as I keep saying that I'm going to, I will I will I will buy you dinner if you want. Yes. <laughs> See, that's what I like to hear. <laughs> <laughs> but well that's a, like when I was in just in Missoula, you know, Virginia Zach, our friend, uh, you know, her whole family, you know, her, her grandma, her mom, mom and stepdad, everyone was there. You know, she had so many people come up and she was like, because I was staying with her. She was like, do you want to come to dinner with us? Like at the Pearl, which is like the best restaurant in Missoula. And I was like, yes, <laughs> I, <laughs> I was like, I don't care if I'm inconveniencing your entire family. <laughs> I want to go I want to go there. And it was so good. I don't regret it. I don't regret what I did to Virginia. Well, that you shouldn't. You shouldn't. Yeah, I often, <laughs> you know, because I, I'm, you know, I have, I, have, I have lots of younger friends, people who used to be students of mine, you know, just as by dint of being around young people all the time, who I will sometimes attempt to buy a meal for. Because when I was in graduate school or just out of graduate school, I didn't have any money. Like, I, I, I my wife still reminisces about this time that I, I could I could go out and get a sandwich for lunch maybe once a week, you know, mm-hmm. when I lived in Missoula. And we went I went to Wardens with a couple yeah. of friends, one of whom was an independently like wealthy, you know, you know, heir kind of guy, like for whom buying a sandwich was just is not something you wouldn't even think twice about. And uh right. I ordered a Reuben. Um mm-hmm. but instead of it being like, you know, like roast beef with some French dressing on a roll or whatever Reuben is or is supposed to be the Reuben at Warden's at this time was an open-faced sandwich with gravy on it, and it was basically <laughs> in a sea of gravy. Yeah. Uh, and one of my f- sort of phobias is is wet bread. Like if okay. the, bre- the bread <laughs> yeah. is too wet, like I can't I, – you know, if a sandwich has been wrapped in plastic for a few hours and then it's all Nothing s- soggy, soggy yeah. on the bottom, I can't do that. So, so this was literally a, the, the lower – you know, the piece of bread that it was sitting on was just swimming in – and it was tragic. I wanted to cry. Right. Yes. And um, 
our friend, our our wealthy friend, was laughing at me and said, "You should see the look on your face." Ah. And it's like <laughs> you don't understand. This is my big. Yeah. This is my lunch of the week, and it's been yeah. ruined. I can't. That's the eat it. worst. That's really but, a sad story. But anyway, it's always so. I understand, you know. But, uh, so I really wanted people to buy, to buy me meals at the time, <laughs> yeah. but I do. To their great credit, a lot of my friends, um, you know, who are getting by on like a lecturer salary or some other odd job, you know, um, they stand their ground and they're like, no, I'm paying for myself or I'm, you know, I'm buying next time. But it's, it's nice when someone, I, it's, it's nice to hear somebody say, yes, you will. You will in <laughs> fact buy me this I food. <laughs> I mean, I, it's not that I want anything fancy, but I'm so tired of eating the food that I have to make. I hate it. Okay. <laughs> it's disgusting. I mean, it's not disgusting. It's good. But I'm tired of it. I need to just, like, learn to make something else. But then I have to buy the stuff the, to make it. And I have all this stuff in my refrigerator that, I, that I'm not using, you know? Yeah. My dad, he's, like, my dad is a grocery hoarder to a pathological extent where whenever it's the thing where he buys. My family will laugh at this. No one else cares. But where he buys broth. Every time he goes to the grocery store, <laughs> that's something that does not go bad that he does not use. <laughs> it's on his list every time broth. My little brother will cross it off. Like we don't need any more fucking broth. And the thing is, if he were to make something that he needed broth, he would go out and get it special. <laughs> <laughs> his broth thing i mean i feel like it has some weird thing to do with his childhood like his <laughs> obsession with buying groceries his family was not poor or, like hungry you know but like I, there's something where he like has like he's a spendthrift about groceries because like because he's like well i'm the dad now i can buy as much broth as i want that's right <laughs> <laughs> uh, but see like but he has like you know four people who lives in his house and so like he can buy food and everyone will eat it but like i'm the only person who eats my food so i don't understand how to buy food for myself i don't understand it i don't get it well uh, you know let me segue this will be our last thing i think because we're we're past oh, yeah. an hour but um how uh how has it been moving to la what first of all why did you go to la as opposed to any place else and how's it how's it going you said you said on twitter that you had a good weekend I did have a good weekend, but we can't discuss it. <laughs> okay. My, I want to move to LA because Ed's Goog told me to. Yeah. Ed's form of advice giving, as I have later learned, is <laughs> you say, I plan to do this. And he says, don't do that. And gives you some <laughs> other advice. 100%. This is always what happens. I didn't know this at the time. I said to Ed, I think I'm, I'm going to move to Seattle. And he said, <laughs> Don't move to Seattle. Okay, where did Ed move? Seattle. Yeah. But, and this is a city where he's lived for years and he enjoys it. But he was like, don't move to Seattle. Like, so snide. And he was like, move someplace real. Move to a real city, New York or L.A. And he was like, just move to L.A. Because, like, he's lived, you know, he lived down here-ish for a long time. Yeah. So, so, and I was like, you know, and it, it was a thing where, uh, it appealed to me because it was something I had that had never occurred to me mm -hmm. to move to LA. I had considered probably every other major city in America. And I was like, Hey, Los Angeles, I don't know almost anyone who lives here, which was another big selling point because I didn't want it to be like grad school too, where I just like came here and hung out with all of my like writer friends i wanted to actually be kind of on my own for the first time and learning to do stuff by myself and and to try to you know i don't know develop my personality or whatever you know in a way that was sort of more independent from from my friends um which was just the total opposite of what i did for four years in missoula and in a lot of ways i feel like i've achieved what I wanted to, you know, like I, I feel I kind of came here with the intention of selling my soul to the internet and getting some new media job. And it, it almost happened that it didn't work out. And then I kind of got bored of that idea, but like, I feel different now. I feel a lot different moving to LA. I feel like people treat me differently. And like, I see myself in a less like distorted light because I'm, I'm, you know, more my own person. 
I've, I, you know, I haven't talked to Ed about this, but my suspicion about that advice to you was that he had in his head a future mythology of Alice, <laughs> you know, yeah. to which he wanted to contribute. Right? He wanted you yeah. to go down that path. But I think I think it was a, I think it was a good idea. And it's I'm a, the thing that amazes me is how quickly you started. You know, you started writing about California. You're yeah, just, you're just diddying the shit out of that shit. Well, I have something that I would like to write soon that's about kind of my very impractical way I've lived my life, which is like sort of chasing writers around. Like <laughs> I moved to Missoula more or less because of Richard Hugo and because I got into grad school there. But, but you know, it was kind of like a thing where I, I was, you know, compelled by, you know, his spirit and his writing. Yeah, me too. And, 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 and Jim really, Welch too for me. Totally. And his writing really informed my, you know – my development and, and being there was a big part of that. And then kind of as I'm transitioning into nonfiction, Joan Didion is totally, you know, my guiding star, you know, whatever, my spirit animal. And so it's like, oh, well, of course I should come to California. You know, if I'm going to continue chasing Joan Didion, um, this is where I should go. And it's worked in a lot of ways for my nonfiction. You know, I f do feel more connected to her and to her writing and writing about her writing has actually been really fun. So, so I don't know. I, w I would like to, I want to think about that idea more, you know, as a writer who's really interested in place, like the way I've lived my life, sort of like, like chasing, chasing these writers. I don't know. You know, it's, there's worse ways to do something. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the cities that we associate with writers and that we romanticize through writers, the writers ended up there for some random bullshit reason. Yeah. You know, they're married to somebody who's living there or they, they got a job there or, you know, they just go to that place and then they do what they're doing in that place and they become a part of that place. And it seems romantic to us when maybe it didn't even to them. So I don't know. I yeah. think it's kind of cool that you're like, you know, you're pursuing that notion as at, and it's, it seems like a valuable thing. I think it is, it could be worse, I guess. <laughs> I mean, the, the American West is like, you know, it's my, the thing I'm most interested in and, you know, growing up in, growing up in like the Pacific Northwest, I don't know, I think there's a reason that, that it's famous for sort of its regional writers, yeah. uh, because yeah, there is, there's something sublime about it, sublime and seedy. You're making me miss the West Coast, dude. Yep. I will. Uh, I'll definitely. Um, I'll definitely go up to the Pacific Northwest in the fall when I when my book comes out and do some literary events. But I hope they yeah. send me to California too because it's been several book tours since I've done that. Yeah. You're Ed, but when do... I become a but when I become a famous um, executive producer of a TV series, of course, I'll go to LA all the time. Right. You'll have to. He said confidently. <laughs> yeah. Follow. You know. You manifest that your own dreams. By being confident about them. That's what I've well, heard. That's what you're living, my friend. Maybe. Maybe someday. All right. Alice, thanks for talking to me. Yeah, this has been fun. Thanks, Hey, John. and by the way, I don't know if you know how this works, but what we do is we pretend to say goodbye to each other, and then I, uh -huh. stop, I stop recording, and then we decide what to call the episode. So Yeah, I've done it. I've done it. Okay. Okay, so let's make a big show of saying goodbye. Okay, well, I'll talk to you later, John. I'll miss you, but, but you know, keep in touch. Take it easy, buddy. You know I will. See you on the Twitter. Okay, okay bye. Are you hungry for lunch? Well, then let's have lunch. Do you want some lunch? Well, then we'll give you some lunch. Do you have a hankering for lunch? Well, then come to lunch. Because it's time. It's time for love